Hi, I'm Tom Savini, and you're watching Without Your Head. But why? Welcome to the Station of Decapitation Without Your Head. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by Fred the Hammer Williamson, who plays Pluto in Devil's Triangle, amongst many other things he's done. It's very cool to have you here. Well, decapitation was part of my background. I mean, they call me the hammer for a reason. That's the way I used to tackle. I used uh-huh. to throw, throw the forearm to the head. It was almost decapitation because the ball went one way and the shoe went another way. So uh, <laughs> that's how I got the name the hammer. Yeah. Well, when when did you first get it? Uh, when did you first get the nickname? Uh, I was uh, I was the number two draft choice of the 49ers. And I was All-American as a flanker back. I was a pass receiver. So in training camp, I go and they give me a red shirt the very first day. So I said, what is the red shirt for? Does it mean I'm special? I'm something different? He said, no, son, you're going to play defense. I says, I don't know how to play defense. Don't you know who I am? You know? At that time, my nickname was Speedy uh-huh. because I was 220 pounds and ran track and was pretty pretty damn fast and had had a track career. So, okay, I said, I'll give it a shot. So, no, after about three, four days, I can't cover nobody, man. I get my legs crossed up. I'm falling down. I can't cover nobody. The coach is Red Hickey. comes up to me and he says, uh, sir, uh, you're disappointing us. Uh, we thought you could make this transition and we see you're not doing very well at it, so you got a couple of days to recoup yourself, or we're just going to have to cut you and send you home. And I said, hey, no way, man. I'm going to get cut from this little poot-butt football team. You know, I mean, I, many fights I had on the street, I'm going to let this poot-butt football team cut me. I said, no, no, no way. So the next day I came out, and I got about one yard off of R.C. Owens, which was a very famous pass receiver back in the day. And Red Hickey says, God damn it, Williamson, get back. He's going to make a fool out of you. I said, shut up and have him hike the ball. That time Brody was a quarterback. So there you go. So R.C. Owens is standing in front of me. I could tell you what he had for breakfast. He's smiling at me and they, he hiked the ball. Hike. He made one fake, one step at me and I gave him that. Knocked him out right there. On the Red Hickey runs over and says, God damn it, Wimson, what are you doing? I said, I covered him. <laughs> he says, all right, back up. Stop hammering my players so I could get some pass offense in. That's how I got it. I love it. Uh, I don't know if you can answer this, but how, how different is it was the NFL of then to today? I couldn't play today. Uh, they're too protective of players. It's okay to be so protective of the quarterback because, you know, he's supposedly not supposed to be that tough guy anyway, but he uh, he's a lot more vulnerable because after he throw a pass, he's, he's vulnerable to some hard hits. So I can understand – all the protections for quarterbacks, but I mean, guys are getting hurt more now trying not to get hurt. Right. Trying not, trying to make that perfect tackle. You know, back in the day, the tackle was put your head in his stomach, lift him up from the legs and slam him down. You can't do that today. That's unnecessary roughness. Mm-hmm. So guys are going in and they're trying to avoid going with their head. And that's where you see a lot of bad tackling. You see a lot of arm tackling guy grabbing by his t-shirt, grabbing by the Jersey, trying to, bring him down. They are a little too concerned about hitting them too rough and too hard. And they'll call it an unnecessary roughness, uh, unnecessary roughness shot. Change the game altogether. So what, what was the transition like from uh, football to acting? Like, uh, was it something you've always, you always thought about or how, how did it come about? Well, um, during, during the off season, I, I was an architect. I'm a trained architect and engineer. So I worked for Bechtel Steel during the offseason, and that was okay. Once I got bored with football, because football was not challenging 
me mentally, it was only t- dealing with physically. And we weren't making that much money anyway. You know, I mean, I, my signing bonus as a, as a two draft tourist was 1900 My starting salary was 9005 So after 10 years, I think I probably made 40000 So that's not a lot of money to be sticking my neck out there. I could go full-time as an architect and make a lot more money. Mm-hmm. So I did that. I walked away from football, went into my office in San Francisco, but after like six months, I couldn't do it, man. I mean, after being un- unregulated for so many years, nine to five, an hour for lunch just did not fit my personality. Mm-hmm. So one night I'm watching television and I see Diane Carroll at a show called Julia. And I noticed that the guest star role on Julia's show was a new boyfriend each week. And I said, in my humble kind of way. I'm better looking than any of those kind of guys. <laughs> I'm going to Hollywood and become Diane Kill's boyfriend. I know I can I know I can get this job based on those guys that I see on that show. Right. I can get I can get this job easily. So I packed up my little XKE, put in a put a trailer to it, put all my goodies in there, drove from Bechtel Steel, which was in San Francisco at the time, drove out to Hollywood, drove into LA, packed my stuff, unpacked my stuff, checked into a hotel, drove to Turn Central Fox Gate. And I said, I'm here to see Mr. Hal Cantor. And I got the name from watching the show. It was the producer. And they said, do you have a drive on? I said, no, I don't have a drive on. They said, well, you can't come on this lot without pass. I said, okay. I drove around a lot, around the corner. Back in those days, there were no cell phones. All we had was pay phones, right? So I called back to the gate. I said, this is Mr. Hal Cantor's office. We're expecting Mr. Williamson. Will you let him in, please? Boom, hung up the phone. Went back to the gate. They go, oh, yes, we just got a call on you, Mr. Williamson. Uh, there's a gate. is in Bungalow 24. So I drive in. I go to Bungalow 24. I go to the secretary, and I said, uh, I'm here to see uh, Mr. Hal Cantor. She said, you have an appointment? I says, no, just tell him the hammer is here. She gets on a squawk box, and she says, Mr. Cantor, there's a Mr. Hammer. I said, no, 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 no Mr. Hammer. <laughs> the hammer. Three, four seconds of silence. He says, football player? I said, yeah, oh, come on in. Let's talk. So we go in. We talk for about 10, 15 minutes about football. Then he says to me, why are you here? I said, listen, I've been watching your show, Julia, and I'm better looking at those guys. And the fact that she's dating a new guy each week, that doesn't make her look good at all. What you need is a regular boyfriend, and I'm it. He says, well, you ever acted before? I said, sure, man. I, I did five years of Raising in the Sun, four years of Common Jones in Canada. Now, I took him to Canada because I know he didn't know squat about Canada and neither did I. <laughs> right. If he asked me what character, I would have been up a creek, right? <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have been able to answer that question at all. He said, okay. Plus, well, like way, way before the internet, so they couldn't go and look, look it up or anything. No, no, they couldn't look it up. <laughs> yeah. He said, okay, I like your spirit. I, we'll, we'll, do, we'll write a show for you called Dancer in the Dark about a pro football player who retires goes to work for the same company that Danco works for. We meet, we fall in love, and we hook up. So that's how we did it. He wrote, he, we, he wrote the show. I did the show, and they signed me to a three-year contract after the show. That's pretty wild. And uh, what you're saying there, like, to me, there's a difference between ego and having self-confidence. And do you, would you say you have to have a lot of self-confidence to make it in show business? Uh, uh, I accept ego. Okay. I accept ego. I could care less how you want <laughs> Well, oh, fair right. enough, man. <laughs> yeah, that's what you call my motivation. I can be egotistical. I can be charming. I can be the hammer. I have multiple facets to, to show my true personality and character, maybe. So anything you want to call me, I'm all for it. Yeah. Well, very good. Did you, uh, so when you first go into acting, you have no experience. Uh, did you take to it right away? First thing I did was never left the set. Everybody had these nice trailers and, booze and, and great food in there. I never left the set. When they say cut and everybody went away to get makeup or put wardrobe on, I bugged the crew. I said, what do you call this thing? Why do you call that an, an HI? Why do you call that a Hemi? What do you do that? Boom, 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 boom. I was learning the business of the business. I was preparing myself to be fully knowledgeable of the industry because the key to success in any business is learning the business of the business. So by the time I finished my three years there, I mean, I, I, would, I could direct. I knew how to put deals together. I knew how to make budgets. I was well prepared to go on my own and do my own thing. Uh, fortunately, I didn't have to do it right away because right after I did Julia's show, I did the movie MASH, 
Then I did start in a movie with Liza Minnelli called Tell Me You Love Me, Junie Moon. And by then I was ready to do my own thing. Yeah. That's like some big things right right there in a row, you know, TV show and, and MASH, uh, iconic uh, movie, you know, they made the TV show off of it. But uh, how, how did you get MASH? Because, you know, the Robert Altman, a big movie. I was, MASH was shot on Twin Sister Fox lot, seeing where Julia was. So I, one day I'm walking in the commissary and I walk past this guy and he says, hey, you're the hammer, right? I says, yeah. He said, I got a football scene in my movie. I don't know anything about football. Would you star in the football, in the movie, and direct all the football stuff? And I said, yeah, sure. The movie was MASH. Uh, the producer was Ingo Priminger. Ingo Priminger took a liking to me. He says, my brother Otto is doing a movie. He's looking for the right kind of guy, and he's having a hard time to find the kind of guy he's looking for because he's a beach boy, and, and he has to have a physique, and he has to be strong because he carries one actor over his shoulder the whole time. And so he takes me to meet his brother, Otto Primager. Mm -hmm. So now I'm in sitting in front of Otto at his house on a bench, and I'm starting to read the script he handed to me. And I, I didn't know anything about reading scripts, man. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you got to be a little, little ahead of the game to, to just read a script and, and give a performance. So I knew I wasn't doing very well. So I took the script, tore it up, threw it on the floor. And I said, I don't want to do this damn role anyway. He says, very good, Fred Dodd. You, you, you football players, when you stop playing, you get out of shape and you can't carry anybody because you have to carry somebody in this film. He was sitting down. I grabbed him by the collar, lifted him up, picked him up, just held him for about three, four minutes, put him down, walked to the door, said goodnight to his wife. So I'm very sorry to disturb your party. And I leave. I go home, my phone's ringing. Fred, Fred, I'm going to talk to you. I said, I want to talk to you. What am I going to talk about? I don't want to be in your damn movie. No, I want you, Fred, to be good to the movie. It's uh, with Liza Minnelli. I said, oh, well, okay. Under those circumstances, I will consider being in your movie. <laughs> I played Beach Boy and Tell Me You Love Me, Junie Moon with Liza Minnelli. Yeah. What was she like? What was Liza Minnelli like? Very talented lady, very sensitive lady, very energetic lady. The lady never got tired, man. After there was a discotheque close to where we were, she'd go in there and she'd dance and dance and dance and come out all sweating. She had energy galore, man. Mm -hmm. now, I, I don't know if you're married or not, so maybe you don't want to answer this. I don't know. But back then, you come in from football, acting. Uh, I assume you had a lot of uh, female fans. Yeah, but it ain't never been my problem, man. Get female fans. <laughs> so I was four years old. They've been hugging at me and saying, well, what a beautiful kid. So, that is not a, that's not a motivation for me. That's just, uh, nah, means nothing, man. Cause, uh, I've been there, done that. It's cool. I'm married. <laughs> Very good. Um, when, when did you, was it, did you like fall in love with acting? Was it something like you learn about it, but did, was it something you also enjoyed and then thought this is something I really like to do? I might've fell in love with acting and I enjoying it, but I didn't fall in love with Hollywood. Hollywood okay. is, is, is a BS environment. Nobody, I, I come from football, you know, you, there's a camaraderie. Uh, you know the guy next to you, you count him because you know what he's going to do. That's what makes it work. Everybody has their job to do. Uh, Hollywood's not like that. I mean, you see a guy walking on the street with a script and he says, hey, what, what you got? He says, oh, it's a grocery list. He's afraid you're going to get in the list, get in a, an interview and take the job away from him. There's no, there's no camaraderie. There's no genuine friendship there. So it bothered me because coming from football, like I say, my exposure was definitely camaraderie. You know, we, it was one, one big family, man. We're going to the locker room. We're telling jokes. We're lying. We're doing, doing whatever we're doing, whatever we're doing. We're having a good time. It's a camaraderie. You can't win if you don't have camaraderie on a football team. So did, that, I, miss, I miss that in Hollywood. Yeah. Did you find more of that when you did like more independent stuff? Well, when, when I do independent stuff, I'm hiring friends. I'm hiring people that I know. I'm hiring people that I like. Yeah, And I picked the locations where I know I can have some fun. Chicago, Rome, Spain, Germany. I pick locations where I have a good time and I got friends. So I'm hiring my friends. You know, I work with Jim Brown, Richard Roundtree, Pam Greer. These are friends, you know. So whenever I had a property of the dude that I could fit them all in, we did. Yeah. When was the first time you heard of the term uh, black exploitation used for a lot of those movies at the time? I heard it from, uh, from unfortunately, from Ebony uh, magazine, the black-owned magazine, 
recall a couple of films. Uh, the first one was uh, Sweet Sweet Back and yeah. Mrs. Roundtree is black exploitation films. I really didn't understand what they were talking about. Uh, I guess they were talking about that they were made for black mentality, a black audience. So I decided that when I make my films, I was not going to be in that genre. So if they were going to fit me into that genre, that would be a big squeeze because, you know, I kill black people, yellow people, pink people, white people, yeah. Japanese people. <laughs> I kill everybody in my movie. If you're right. bad, if you're bad, <laughs> if you're, bad you're, you're gonna, gonna get killed. You're, you're gonna get hammer. Yeah, yeah. It ain't, it, ain't, it ain't about white against black. It's bad against evil. Bad yeah. against good. So if you try to call my films black exploitation, then you're trying to squeeze me into a, a, a square hole and it don't work. But they did. You did. I, mean, I couldn't imagine who the hell's being exploited. I got, I'm hiring black actors. I'm hiring white actors. I'm hiring everybody. Who the hell is being exploited? So I, just, I didn't deal with that. I just kept doing my thing. I didn't really care what they called it. Yeah. Did you um, run into a lot of racism uh, in Hollywood? I ran into racism my whole life. That's my motivation, dude. That's what makes me a success. That's what created me. That's what made me who I am. You know, you're going to tell me I can't do something. You just, hey, you just lit my fire, man. You're going to tell me I'm, and I'm better looking than you anyway, and you white and I'm black. Come on, man. You know, I can't take you serious any damn way. So you can say whatever you have to say, because I ain't taking you serious based on what you're saying about me. And I'm looking at you. Forget about it. Mm -hmm. Well, what did your family think of you pursuing uh, acting after football? First thing my, my mom said is, why don't you get a job? <laughs> <laughs> Why you know back in the day, man? Yeah, the most prestigious occupation was a doctor, a lawyer. She said, "Why don't you get a job?" I said, "Mom, I got a job. I'm doing okay. I'm making money. I just remodel your house. I just made your house longer and taller and bigger." She said, "Yeah, but that's that's really nice. That's really nice. Why don't you get a job?" <laughs> okay well you know i'm just doing my thing man making you, you you know making you happy and, and if i can do it without a job i'm gonna still do it she said well it should be nice if you got a job <laughs> said, okay all right did, did she always say that even while you're making movies oh yeah i, just, <laughs> I was making movies i even when i made a couple of uh, premieres in chicago because we're living in gary indiana at the time i sent a limo over for him and and they really didn't like that so much because when the limo came, the whole neighborhood came out and watched and everybody stood and see who got in the, limo, in the limousine. So I'd pick them up and bring them to the premiere where the theater where they were opening. And uh, they were a little squeamish about that, but you know, they came and it, it was fun. It made me feel good to do something for them that was kind of unusual, you know, being in a limousine and being chauffeured around. Yeah. And it was unusual for them. Yeah. Would you have any advice uh, for, for having longevity in the business? Because you're someone who's, you know, worked your whole career. But I think I've already said that. Learn the business of the business. Learn what makes you different than somebody else. Learn if you are marketable, then make yourself mar mar marketable. Because I did that playing football. I mean, I could ask you right now, your favorite football team, I'm sure you got one. Name me the four defensive backs. I bet you can't do it. Right. I can't. No, I'm, in, I'm in Massachusetts, so I'm a Patriots fan. Can you name me the four defensive backs? No, I cannot. Yeah, yeah. But you can name the running back and the pass receivers, okay? Right. Just like that. No problem. Defensive back, you might get two. But I said, okay, if I'm playing defensive back, no, they don't know my name. I got to do something that people know who I am. So I, I, you know, I captivated on the nickname Hammer. So people would say, that's a guy out there, 24. He's really good. I mean, I don't know his name, but they call him the hammer. So I was thinking about marketability after the football. And defensive backs don't get it. If you ain't throwing the ball, catching the ball, or running the ball, you don't get the notoriety. You don't, you don't, you don't, get, you don't make the big bucks, and you don't get the notoriety. Mm -hmm. Along those kind of lines, are there any, like, roles you would, like, turn down because you didn't think it really fit the, the hammer persona? I turn down roles all the time. I turned down two just the other day. I sell an image. Mm -hmm. I don't sell being the greatest actor. I might be selling the most believable actor because I'm playing something close to my own personality and my own character other than killing people. But, well, that's good enough. Uh, well, <laughs> hey, never know. Dude. <laughs> right, right. 
It wasn't me. I wasn't there. <laughs> you know, no. Uh, I will make I you upset, hopefully. But I still an image. That's mm-hmm. what I saw. Like Eastwood, like Bronson. These guys sold an image. So when you go to see them in a film, you go to see them do their normal thing. You don't want to see him dancing. You don't want to see him singing. You don't really care if he has a love affair. That ain't important to him. It's only important maybe to the girls who want to see him do something with with a woman. But the guys want to see the bravado. They want to see the energy. They want to see how you react to a certain negative situation. And not always you have to fight. If you are smart enough and intelligent enough to avoid it, knowing full well that if you have to do it, you will win the fight. So to me, it's about image. How is um, the changes like, so when you get it, you know, you, you get the rise of VHS tape and then uh, DVDs and then the fall kind of physical media is not really a big thing. Now it's streaming. Uh, how does that affect you, uh, your career? It's a very smart way to make money because I learned very soon after started making my own movies, and gave them to Universal or Paramount to distribute, they made all the money. I didn't make a dime. I mean, you tell me that the budget, I make a budget for $2 million and a movie made 15 million or 12 million and I don't, there's no profit for me. So it is very stupid to give your film to a major anyway, because they're going to steal all the money. But he who touches the money first makes the most money. So I learned that when you go to streaming and you go to DVD, it's money up front. It's money right away. You know how many items are sold. You know how many tapes are sold. They can't tell you it's not doing well. When you walked in there and you saw a thousand tapes on the wall and you go back the next day and they're all gone and they tell you it ain't selling, they can't do that. But in movie business, unless you've got a friend or several friends standing outside a theater with a clicker and counting people as they go into the theater and then go to the studios and say, they tell you, we had a bad week. We had a bad day. He said, well, hey, here's a count, man. 500 people walked in yesterday. I said, well, you know, we got an overhead. We got to pay this. You got a, you got a percentage here. No. It's an, ego, it's an ego thing to have your film distributed by a major, but it's not very profitable to the producer. Mm-hmm. Um, well, when you got Dust Till Dawn, um, how important do you think that is to, uh, it, it exposed you to like a, a new group of fans, I think, you know, like young, younger fans. Well, basically, yeah. I mean, not just, it did expose me to younger fans in a different kind of genre, but it also exposed me to white fans. Say, wow, this guy's cool. You know, this guy's cool. You know, all the black, all the black neighborhoods, they knew me. They knew (laughs) knew you were cool. (laughs) Yeah, they knew I was cool. (laughs) They see me in Dust of Dawn, and they go, yeah, hey, the brother's all right, man. He's kind of cool. I wonder what what other movies he's in. And they started looking around, and they see you know, some playing on Prime Video and some playing on Netflix. And yeah, this, the brother's cool, man. Oh, that's the hammer. Yeah, yeah, right. So it gave me a, another dimension, you know, and yeah. hey, everything helps. Definitely. What was Quentin like? Because I knew from interviews, you grew up watching a lot of your movies. So uh, I assume he's kind of, was he kind of like a, a fan of yours when he's uh, in the movie? Well, yeah. I mean, that's why he hired me because, you know, they came they came to me and, and I had to show them that I had the talent to give the, what they want that character to do. And I did a whole lot of things that even improvised that made them all very, even more happy. So Quinn is, is a straight up guy. You know I mean? The, the press, the press seems to think that Quinn's in love with me because I made two or three movies before and Quinn made a couple of movies. I did the uh, Inglorious Bastards in yeah. 1973, 74. And then Quinn comes along and makes an Inglorious Bastards. Then I did a film Back in the 70s called The Legend of Nigger Charlie, which is a runaway slave who goes west and becomes a gunfighter. Then he makes Django. So the press made a little thing out of that that Quentin must really like the hammer because he he's my, he's copying his style and doing movies like the hammer. So, I mean, I had nothing to do with that. Press put that out. <laughs> Fair enough. I think Brendan is joining us here. <laughs> well, why he's joining us, I do, uh, before we start getting into Devil's Triangle, I do want to ask real quick about VFW because – I'm a big fan. And uh, was that fun to do a movie with a bunch of veteran actors? VFW was great. First of all, it was in Germany. You know, we made it in Germany. So one of my favorite things is working in Europe anyway, because I get the respect as a, as a good actor and that as an ex-football player. Uh, I get the respect that I feel that I have earned and there, like 
most of the studios, if studio calls me for a part, they want me to read, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, I made 75 movies. What do you mean you want me to read? <laughs> right. You know? And you like you said, you, you're selling your character. So yeah. if they want you, they know what the, you know, who you are. And, then they, and then, then they know that I don't die in movies, okay? I got rules. You can't kill me in a movie. I got to win on my fights. They send me a script. I die in the first five minutes. <laughs> What is what is that about? I mean, I mean, you, you not respect how I feel. You don't respect what I what I stand for. You know, it ain't about the money. It's about the character that I play, and I got to live after. I cannot walk down New York Street and if I get killed, beat up by, in a movie, and a brother come up to me and says, "Hammer, why you let the little guy beat you up, man? You know, you can't, you can't do that, Hammer. No, I can't. So it ain't about money for me, man. It's about the character, and it's about me having fun. If I, and if that if that's fulfilled. In front of me, I'm there. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to welcome also here joining us, Director Brendan Patrizio, I believe is how you say it. I hope so. You bring a check, dude. <laughs> hey, Fred. How you doing? <laughs> Damn good. Yeah, it's good I, to have you here. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I've been talking to it, to Fred, and uh, so we're going to get into Devil's Triangle now. If uh, you wanted to, First of all, give people an idea what Devil's Triangle is about. Oh, boy. Well, The Devil's Triangle is about the uh, supposed lost city of Atlantis and kind of the craziness and hijinks that go on down there. So how did you get involved? Because I know it's uh, written by two different uh, two fellows. Did you know them before the movie? Yes, I did. Um, Two of them are very good friends of mine. Um, You know, I got Brendan, the other Brendan, the job of, of writing the film and He's an amazing writer and super talented and, you know, his scripts are always fun and exciting and, and crazy. Um, so it was great to, you know, we've, I think this is the first time we've like actually like worked together um, on like a film. Other times it's been like, you know, we've kind of collaborated here and there, but you know, this was like the first time we, we actually did something together. Yeah. So that was very nice. And uh, Fred, how did you get involved? They asked me. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't have to read. Yeah, and me. you didn't get killed right away. I didn't get killed at all. No, I know. I don't want to spoil the movie, but <laughs> <laughs> you have to spoil the movie. The hammer don't die, dude. <laughs> right. The Atlanteans are not going to be beating up uh, the hammer. But I read, I read the script, you know, and I, and I and I knew that I was going to be a central figure, and a central figure had to be strong enough to have everybody rotate around it. Otherwise, you know the imagination is stretched a lot in this kind of film because of where it is. It's a city underwater. So you have to have somebody that's in the lead that's credible that Mm -hmm. can pull that off and have people believe that that's really where we are. And that's really what's happening. So that's how I looked at it. That's how I envisioned it to, to be that central figure that everybody would believe is really happening. And uh, Brendan, what did you, why did you think the hammer would be good for this? Well, you know, with a movie like this, you need a legend and an icon. And, you know, I have been a massive fan of the New York Grindhouse film scene for years. And honestly, Fred was the only one I wanted. Um, you know, he was the one person that I'm like, he is the only one who can do this movie. Um, you know, so when when we reached out, we were so grateful when Fred was like, yes. Because <laughs> like, I was like, we need a legend, you know, for a film like this. Uh, because, you know, uh, if you're familiar with Asylum movies, they don't always do films of this nature. This is kind of a one-off for them. So, you know, we needed someone with, uh, you know, history and, and who's done this and who can helm it. So that's how we got Fred. You can't play this kind of character with a smile on your face. You can't. You have to be serious and people have to believe that you're serious. When I'm saying we got to go, we got to mm-hmm. get out of here. They believe that. Mm-hmm. Or else it would make the, you know, it gives the movie a totally different vibe if you'd play it, you know, for laughs. No, no laughs here, dude. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm, you, speaking up, you know, like keeping up with the business and learning things. How is it for you when CG starts to take off and uh, working in a movie that uses a lot of uh, not practical effects, uh, you know, CG? Well, that question is for me. I don't do CG because I don't have enough money to do CG. So I, I just bring in a what lot of good the, as acting wise. No, no. I mean, CG is blue screen stuff, you know, right. uh, which is expensive because you go through a lot of processing to make it real, make it a real deal. 
I don't do that because I don't have the budget to do that. And, and I can get a lot of friends in, that are big names who can come work in my films, you know, because they know they're going to have fun. Not, I'm not paying them a lot of money, but we're going to have a lot of fun. I give you a you know, limousine ride to work every day and a couple of flowers and an extra sandwich. So we have a good time, you know. So I have that advantage. Mm-hmm. I don't come as a producer because if they come to Brandon, the first thing they say is, how much am I making and when, <laughs> how long do I have to work? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they come to me and they say, what do you want me to do, Hammer? I said, okay, here's what you got to do, man. I don't have as much money, but we're going to have a good time. Okay, man, all right, let's do it. So yeah. it's a little different for me. How about yourself, Brandon, uh, directing with, um, with a lot of blue screen, green screen, uh, you know, color keying? And a lot of nothing. Sometimes we don't even have that. And we're just like, okay, right over there is, uh, that's the Hydra, um, that wall over there. Uh, that's, that's the Hydra. Or for, uh, actually, in, in our case, uh, Fred, when we were filming, you know, your fight with the Hydra, uh, there were moments where like all the way in the distance, you could see the Disney fireworks because uh, we were filming at a friend of mine's uh, house for Atlantis. And from her giant backyard, you can see the Disneyland fireworks. So it was literally like, okay, Fred, right over there where the fireworks are. That's the Hydra. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was good. It was good. You had a good visual. To I look saw at. it. I saw it, man. I mean, I, that fire was coming out of my gun and I was blasting that thing up. <laughs> it was great, man. I loved it. Yeah. And uh, uh, Brendan, is it hard to direct a, um, a veteran actor? I thought it was fun. Fred, you're not hard to direct. You're easy. It's fun. It's well, a great collaboration. It wasn't a proper question that he asked any three, you know. That's not, you don't ask that question about an actor. They're all wonderful guys, wonderful people to work with. You don't, you don't ask that. Especially kind of when they're, when they're here. If they, if, if he wasn't here, I could maybe ask it, but yeah. No, no, that, that question will never I get meant more if it was intimidating to, to, uh, to direct a veteran actor. You don't ask that question either. <laughs> That's not a question you ask about actors, you know? Well, I'm going to learn how to uh, to interview for, from from the yes. hammer. You can't ask that kind of question because they'll never you'll never get a right answer. You never get a proper answer. So why even bother? <laughs> Fred, I'm curious. Did you saw the film, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Oh. What did you think of the scene where we did the whole green screen and posing? Because we shot um, Fred separately uh, outside of the submarine. And we were like, I could see it on the lens. Like, you know, I could see like a rough outline of what we were going to do. And then I'm just curious, what did you think of that? It was amazing, man. I mean, I believe that's where I was, you know, <laughs> I believe I was under the water and I'm saying, let's go. And I'm and the, the, the rockets took off and I'm leaning back and <laughs> rockets. I mean, it was great. It was fun, man. I mean, that's really fun movie making. That's yeah. fun. Yeah. It's, it's like giving a kid, a, a five-year-old kid, a, a, a box, man, and, and and you give him a great toy, you take the toy out, and the box is what he's going to play with. Because it's more believable in that box than that little toy. We know it's fake. You can see <laughs> it ain't moving. But in this box, it's real deal, man, because he's moving in, his, in the brain, you know? That little yeah. toy, that, that doesn't get played with for way down the line. Uh, did either of you get to make it to any of the, um, the theatrical uh, releases? Uh, did you get to see with an audience? No, I didn't. I didn't get to do that. Yes, I went three or four days after I went to theaters um, with a few friends just to kind of see. And it was fun. You know, it was definitely it was later in. So I knew the theater told me they were like, yeah, a few people came to watch it. Um, but then we went when there was like a 10 o'clock showing at night. So it was basically just us there and maybe like two or three other people. And it was fun. Yeah. Plus, we're in a weird time right now with, you know, people going to the theater, obviously. Yeah. Uh, how did that did that affect um, uh, filming the movie at all? COVID. Um, I mean, I didn't kiss anybody, so I mean, no, it didn't affect me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it. This one, no. Um, it's you know, it was it was really easy. Monster Hunter is the one I did during COVID. Yeah, it was that was harder. But with this one, this was a walk in the park. So you said you filmed the Atlantic, uh, Atlantic. Uh, stuff at your friend's house how about like the stuff on the beach the stuff on the beach we shot at newport beach uh we filmed at the wedge which is a popular surf spot the waves are about six or seven feet tall they can get taller as well uh we were luckily filming on a day where they were about six to eight feet tall sometimes 
of course, when we weren't filming facing in their direction, they were giant and big and looked amazing. And then when we turned to film in their direction, it was like, and we're going to shrink the waves down again. So uh, my actor friend, Dan Yeager, wants me to ask uh, uh, Fred uh, what his favorite cigar is. Why? You're going to buy me some? He might. He's a big cigar fan. So. Well, I don't really believe I'm going to give you that secret. You know, right. what I smoke in my hand and in my mouth is private. So unless you're going to buy me some of these expensive cigars <laughs> that I smoke, mm -hmm. I'm not buying Very simple. That's fair and enough. I, I appreciate they were that. Paying me, if they were paying me, I would promote this, the line of cigars. <laughs> so I'm not telling you. Well, that's fair enough. That's fair. Uh, Brendan, did you get to share a cigar with uh, with Fred? I brought my own cigar <laughs> for the scene. I brought this is where's your cigar? I said right here. In my, <laughs> my own cigars. Thank you very much. Yeah, you don't trust what what, what whoever what they're going to have on set. Not a matter of trust, dude. It's just style. There you go. The shape, the length of the cigar that I want to perpetuate the image and character that I have in all my other movies. I'm not going to put a big fat cigar in my mouth, man. That's that's the <laughs> work for me. I want a cigar that looks like me, long and slender. <laughs> well, there we go. We're getting a lot of uh, a lot of personal information. Here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, Brendan, uh, do, yeah. what do you have in the works? And oh, by the way, I mentioned the theatrical run, but you can get uh, the movie on on video on demand now. Video on demand. Um, it's going to be on Amazon Prime two or three months from now, um, I think. Uh, it will come to Prime in the next five months. I just don't remember the exact date. And then there's a rumor I can't confirm or deny it might be coming to DVD. Oh, nice. So keep your fingers crossed. Yeah, and hopefully there'll be some specials on there. I know we live in a time when I have a lot of, I've got old VHS tapes up here and stuff, but I know a lot of people don't uh, still buy. Uh, you say, babe, it's already on Prime? We just saw it. On it's already on Prime. Oh, it's on Prime already? Already on Prime. Oh my God! You got a check coming. You, you, you didn't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't tell me everything. I just get the screener, and then they're like, "Great, thanks for doing the movie." Yeah, for <laughs> Fred, Fred's giving you the giving us the uh, the cruiser. I like the lighting in the movie too. A lot of purples. I always think that adds a lot of uh, production value to movie when used, you, you know, different types of lights. Yeah. No, we have a great DP, uh, Marcus Freelander. He is my my ride or die, my go-to, and he loves to use, um, you know, like vibrant colors to to bring things out. Because, you know, the, these movies, the budgets aren't very big, so he likes to go in there and make it. So it's like, well, okay, we might not have the budget to buy a whole bunch of stuff for, you know, the art department, but what we do have, we have these lights, we can use them. Here's what we can do to bring out the bring out the scene, you know? Yeah. And you, you mentioned, you know, Asylum doesn't always put out movies like this. Have you worked with Asylum before? Oh, yes. <laughs> I've, I've been working with them for about five years. Oh, nice. How did, how did that come about? Well, um, long story short, uh, growing up, I was a massive Roger Corman fan, a massive, I mentioned before, uh, Grindhouse fan, especially Italian Grindhouse films. Uh, and I kind of realized you know, the one place I should probably start is the asylum because that is the modern day Roger Corman. So I just was like, I'm going to do this. And luckily I was able to, you know, befriend a few people there. And, you know, after a year or two, next thing you know, um, I'm here. Yeah. And I liked, uh, Fred, that there's a hammer reference in the movie. That was a very clever move that somebody thought of. Yes, it worked out rather good. <laughs> Uh, I have a, uh, well, there's a lot, but do you mind if I ask just a couple questions um, that people sent in when I mentioned uh, you were going to be on the show? No, you're talking to me or anybody. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, you don't mind, Brandon, I hope. I've, uh, I've, got, I've got the answers if they got the questions. All right. Uh, Troy wants to know, what are the memories of being in the first Super Bowl with the Chiefs? The check cleared. <laughs> it wasn't very much, but it was a definite honor to be in the first Super Bowl with the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, I made some comments and quotes that I was going to take out certain individuals personally, which I did. Uh, but later on in the game, in the last quarter, I made a tackle too low and Don Anderson's knee hit me right in the top of the head and put me to sleep for about 30 seconds. <laughs> so then they said, all right, Henry, all right, come. I'm, they're talking to me. I'm laying on the field. And I says, come on, we'll carry you. I said, no, you don't carry me. No, just drag me off the field. 
I'm not walking off the field staggering like I'm drunk. Carry me off the field, and you'll be happy. That's my that that's it, man. And the whole Super Bowl after that was they got the hammer, right? They <laughs> oh. got the hammer, right? The hammer didn't get the hammer. Hammer got the hammer. That's who got the hammer. <laughs> the hammer got himself. Uh, uh, Brian wants to know, working with Al Davis with the Raiders. Al Davis was a genius. Al Davis knew, this, knew the game. Not only that, but he knew people. When he, when he talked to students who were, who were going to be future football players, he knew the capacity and the, and the thing that they were going to bring to the team. He knew the energy that these players had. He knew their stats. This guy was a genius. But the NFL owners didn't like Al Davis. Al Davis was too strong for them. They wanted to merge. Al Davis wanted to merge and take over the NFL. And the NFL didn't want to do that. So secretly, they had a meeting behind Al Davis's back that they would merge and not include Al Davis. So they did that. And Al Davis out of a job. He was out. The only thing how he survived is that his family had enough money for him to maintain the status for the Raiders. And that's what kept him in. So he had a vendetta the whole time that he was coaching against the National League because they didn't like Davis. And uh, let's see, a lot of these we covered, but uh, Doc wants to know, uh, did you get to meet James Brown when he, when he did the soundtrack for the film Black Caesar? Dude, every movie that I make and produce and star and, and direct is hands-on. I pick the people very carefully. James Brown was perfect for Black Caesar. First of all, there's so many great Black musicians that Hollywood ignore. How many movies have you seen that some of these great artists, you know, never really have scored a movie? Brown, James Brown never scored a movie. Uh, Jazz, all these jazz guys we have. I mean, Joe Williams, all Dinah, Dinah Shore, Dinah Washington. They never, they never scored a movie. It's crazy. You know what I paid? You know what I paid James Brown? Five dollars. I gave him five dollars to score in a movie. Just something he wanted to do when you offered us. I want to do it more than that. I said, all the money that the movie that you make on the on the music is yours. You know, it's going to play overseas because all my movies go overseas. I said, you're going to get residuals from that. I won't take any of that. It's all yours, 100%. I just want you to come up with some great music on my films. That's the way I get my music, man. It's easy. I just go where the, where the white producers don't go, which is the black artists. And it's crazy. It's crazy that they don't use them, except for some rap stuff that every now and then you hear a rap artist, man. But, dude, I, I got Nancy Wilson. I got uh, James Brown. I got maybe 15 artists in different movies. Five dollars. Because you got to be some exchange of money. So my limit is five dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they own the music. It's all yours. Just allow me to put it on my film and it's all yours. It's a win win for both of you then. Phyllis Hyman. Yeah. What happened? I was just saying it was a win win for both of you. Did Brendan say something, sorry? Yeah. yeah we had Phyllis Hyman. We, we had Skylights. We had all, we had all we had Temptations. We had all these guys, man. Nobody's using them in films. Nobody ever did. I don't understand it. Uh, Brennan, you said, uh, you know, you love the Grindhouse movies. And uh, what, so what were some of your favorite movies that made you want to pursue this and become a, a filmmaker? Um, I would say on the Grindhouse scene, it would be Lucia Fulci's The Beyond, uh, Zombie 2. I'm a huge Regera Diodato fan. So, you know, I do, I do really enjoy Cannibal Holocaust from time to time. Um, I think it's a brilliant film. Um, other than that, when it comes to like Roger Corman stuff and more American things, I would say the terror. I think the production behind that movie is wild and crazy and insane. And I absolutely love it. So I would say some of those films, uh, that, those are the ones I can think of right now. Yeah. And I asked Fred earlier about uh, what his family thought when he started to get into making movies. How about yours? What did your family think? They were fine with it. Um, they loved it. They supported it. You know, they still support it. Um, I do think it's funny every once in a while. Um, I know when there's a new Mamma Mia movie, my mom will text me the trailer and be like, why can't you make a movie like this? <laughs> um, but, you know, I told her, I was like, okay, give it like 10 years. <laughs> All right. I can see Fred in that one. You know what, what I said about my mom? My mom always said, why don't you get a real job? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you get a real job? 
That was her statement to me. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I mentioned, uh, Fred, about going into movies. How about, you know, going from acting to producing? Was, was, that, a, was that a big challenge? Or? Talking to me? Yeah. No, because I was smart enough to watch where my major audience was. My major audience, believe it or not, is Europe. So I start going to all the festivals, Cannes, me fed. I went to all of them. I didn't know what I was going to learn. I didn't know what I was going to do. I would just sit there and watch and watch how they manipulated things and all the lies that they told to get the things sold. So I, by the time it was ready for me to raise some money, I went and pre-sold my film. My first movie was uh, 800000 and I pre-sold contracts on, on, the Car- on the Carlton Terrace at Cannes. I gave the maid of D $25 every day for lunch to give me this one table in the middle. And I'd put my posters around that I had made and flyers around. And they'd come and says, what do you got? And I'd tell them what I got. And I sold my movies that way. And I took the contracts back to Los Angeles. The first Los Angeles bank loaned me money against the contracts. My $800,000 shrink down to about six hundred. by the time they got through taking their part out of it. I had about 600 to make a movie. And my first movie was Ideal Sobigo with Richard Pryor. And I made it for 600000 Movie made a mint, made a mint. But that's how I started. And that's what I continue to do now. It's a little harder now because for a lot of reasons. But anyway, my foreign market is bigger than my American market. Much bigger. Interesting. Along those lines, uh, Devil's Triangle, is that, uh, does that play well in other countries or is it too early to tell? It is too early to tell. Give it six months. Yeah. And uh, I, I also like that. I think it goes sooner than that, dude. Was it? I think oh. so. I, I think it's because it came out last month. It'll be, yeah, it's maybe two to three months or something like that. It depends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like the beginning of the movie because it really it it makes it um, seem like a bigger story. It almost seems like a sequel because you give so much backstory about you know what happens before the movie even starts. Yeah, with with that, you know, this movie it is a one hundred percent original. It has no sequels and you know prequels or anything. But I do like kind of world building, and you know, with Monster Hunters, I tried to world build and tie a few of the films together. With this one, I was like, I really want to do the same. Um, there is another version where I added even more stuff, um, but it was trimmed down and chopped down and cut out. But I really tried to pull, you know a lot of different like asylum lore to create, you know, this giant world. So that way, you know, for those asylum fans when they're watching, they can be like, Oh, Atlantis is the reason X, Y, and Z happened in this movie from five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. It is interesting because the whole asylum world and, and like the sci-fi stuff, it's almost its own genre and has its own fan base. It really does. And the fans are very dedicated and loyal and very opinionated. And, you know, it's fun. It's, it's always very fun. So the devil's triangle, we just found out for, from Fred that it is on uh, Amazon prime. So people can go watch it uh, right after this interview and uh, are either. Well, I know Fred, if you look at his IMDb, he's got all kinds of stuff coming out, but are you either of you working on anything currently? Yeah. My next movie is in Spain, right after uh, the holidays, I'm off to Spain in Almira, Spain, to do a movie called The Fourth Horseman with Enzo Castellari directing. So it's an Italian Western. So that's what I'm off to. Oh, very cool. Oh, that's really fun. I remember you telling me about that on set. That's going to be really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Oh, I can't wait for that. They make make better Westerns than Americans anyway. You know, Americans Americans try to put too much into a Western. They got a love story. You got cattle. You got sheep. You got... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's bullets and bullets that are in yeah, the you, got, you got black hats and people shooting each other. Oh, yeah. bullets, <laughs> or shooting at each other because everybody don't get hit. Right, right. Yeah. The very, very. That's a that's a big difference. <laughs> Especially right. Fred, he's not getting shot. But uh, we well, might get right. shot, but you'll live. Yeah. You got to get shot sometimes. That way, if you survive, now the audience is behind you to go take out these people who yeah. shot you. Then that makes it all work. Right. It's very much, it's, it's more heroic if you get shot and come back. You can't go and kick it down doors because then they call you a bully. 
you got to wait for the kick a door and the door bounce back and hit you in the face and knock you down. Now yeah. the door is your enemy. So you can do whatever you want to the door once you That's wake it. up. That's a good, you know, I, I'm kind of laughing and stuff, but honestly, all that is our good points in keeping, you know, the hero heroic. Yeah. And uh, Brennan, what are you working on? Well, I have two horror films in the works. One of them is a horror hybrid. Um, I don't want to give too much away. I'm trying to keep it under wraps, but maybe it has something to do with the artwork behind me. I can't, uh-huh. I can't say, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I have that. And then I have another horror film in the works. Um, you know, they're, they're outside of the asylum world of things. So it's going to take a little more time, but you know, with these projects, I do want to take the time to develop them and you know, all that. Yeah. And now where can people follow you, Brendan, to, to see what you're up to? Oh boy. Well, online, uh, not, not your home. or anything. <laughs> um, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. The handle is the same for both. It's Brendan Patrizzo, B-R-E-N-D-A-N-P-E-T-R-I-Z-Z-O. And now Fred, where can people, they can just put in Fred the Hammer Williamson and they're going to yeah, they find all of those. They can't find me. <laughs> That's right. I'm, they can't I'm find not- your favorite cigar. They can't find oh. anything. I'm not meant to be found outside the screen. Dude. I mean, <laughs> you know, people get touchy sometimes, right? When they come That's over, very true. That's very your true. Your best friend, you know, and if you don't, re- you know, reciprocate, then they feel you're hostile. You're a bad guy. You're not a good guy. So I just, uh, I just hide, man. <laughs> very good. I'm on, golf, I'm on the golf course every day, man. I can hide <laughs> on the golf course. All right. Fair enough. This has been very fun. I was glad to talk to with both of you. Yeah. Thank you for, for doing the interview. Yeah, thanks for doing it. Thanks for setting it up. Checks in the mail, right? Checks in the mail from you, right? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. It's been very fun. I'll get it up. I'll post it up soon here. Okay. All right. right. Appreciate it. Happy holidays. Same to you, dog. Bye, guys. See you, Brandon. Bye. See you, Brandon.